Welcome to the Beyond Talent Podcast, where passion, mindset, and movement come together. For endurance athletes, by endurance athletes. Hey guys, thanks for joining us for episode 11. If you're listening to this on one of the podcast apps, we've also made this available on YouTube, so we will share a link to that in the show notes. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. And we would like you to know that you can find all of our prior episodes uh, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or any other of the platforms listed on our website, beyondtalentpodcast.com. For this episode, Coach Ted and I go over the run metrics from my Eugene Marathon on April 30th. So it may be easier to follow along uh, through the YouTube video. A couple of things I want to mention before we start. First, this is not meant to be a full deep dive analysis on my performance. We simply did not have enough time to cover all the factors leading into the marathon. However, I will share my reflections on this race in future episodes as I train for the Chicago Marathon coming up in October. I also want to make a note that I have not been coached by Ted in this marathon, the UG Marathon, prior marathons, or uh, as I train for Chicago. I want to make that distinction because I don't want you to mistakenly judge him if I miss a goal or if I'm making any kind of bad training decisions. With that said, we hope you find this episode interesting and useful. And if you do, please click that like button. If you want to be notified for future episodes, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and follow along on the podcast apps. Without further ado, let's jump in. Hello, my fellow athletes. Welcome to another episode of the Beyond Talent Podcast. This is Andy Lai, and I'm with Coach Ted. We are at episode 11, and today we're going to recap the Eugene Marathon, uh, the race that I participated in on April 30th. So we're going to talk about the race, recap what happened. We're going to look into the data. Coach Ted's going to walk us through some of the data and the insights that he gleaned off of the result, what happened. And uh, let's get after it, Ted. All right. So... First of all, congratulations on your race. I was following your race. Knocked out a PR, personal record, 327. Four minutes faster than your last one in Dallas just a few months ago, back in December. Thanks, Ted. It, it, it was good to run uh, my fastest time. But uh, as you know, we were trying to uh, qualify for Boston so I could join you there next year. That's not looking too promising at the moment, but there's always another race. And you know what that is, and we'll, we could talk about that a little later. Yep, didn't quite get it, but it's always good to see that progress moving forward, getting a little bit faster than the last one. So I want to talk. Let's let's talk about this race and let's talk about it in great detail. I want to approach it from my standpoint as a coach, and then you could give me your viewpoint as the athlete, and we'll we'll take a look behind the numbers and see what's see what's what we can discover for a little bit more performance improvements and get you that qualifying time at Chicago. Sounds good. Sounds good. So let me just set the stage in terms of uh, the setting, right? We're talking about Eugene, Eugene, Oregon. It's south of Portland by hour or a little bit more than an hour. And, and the drive took about five minutes or sorry, five hours from uh, Seattle. The weekend weather was actually really nice on the warm end. Uh, got in there on Thursday, really nice weather, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I think it was in the 80s, clear skies, beautiful. Um, 
and we went to the expo on Friday, right Friday afternoon. So there was not a lot of people there. Um, it was nice to to beat the rush. The expo was very small. It, it was a nice expo. It was in the Graduate Hotel, and it uh, had a really cool lobby. Um, but it was small, smaller than I expected. It was smaller than the Dallas Expo. As you remember, Dallas was in a big convention center. This was in a small hotel. Uh, it was in the downtown part of Eugene a little bit. Uh, I believe it was west of the campus, the University of Oregon campus. So it was nice. It was nice. Our hotel wasn't too far. And we got that uh, taken care of. And then had a couple of shakeout runs on Friday and Saturday. Did I run on Friday and Saturday? Yeah, I think it was Friday and Saturday. I don't think I ran on Thursday. But it was just a few miles here and there, 30 minutes, shaking out. Um, our hotel was actually really close to the to the park and right along the marathon route around mile 10. It was the Fairfield Inn. And there was a trail right right by there that actually um, is it, – it's, it's a – it's a trail that's next to the Priest Trail. So Priest Trail is technically like this wooded path, um, which is really cool. And you'll see people running there all the time. So it, it was a good location. When I did my first shakeout run, I ran down that path towards the university and went down towards the stadium, which is really close to uh, the part of the university that I, that I entered. And the stadium was awesome. Um, it was a Friday afternoon and the the there wasn't a lot of students walking around so uh the stadium was there and, and it kind of gave me a lot of energy and i got really excited seeing it just being there it was a it's a really modern facility and i uh i kind of took a little little jog around it and then went back so yeah you sent us you sent me some pretty good pictures via text message and uh looked like you're pretty excited the day before just the venue itself being in a venue adjacent to the University of Oregon, steeped in the history of Steve Prefontaine, uh, the place, the birthplace of Nike, Nike uh, running shoes. So, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So, interestingly, the one of the days before, uh, I think it was, I think it was Thursday night actually. We, I found a pizza place on campus, and the there was a guy there, and I heard, overheard him talking to somebody. And that their conversation ended, and I was as I was waiting for the pizza, this guy struck up a conversation with me, and we started talking about the marathon a little bit. He wasn't a marathon runner, but he he was telling me the story of the fact that he ran into Steve Prefontaine's sister uh, in town. Um, I don't know how far back, but he was like showing me pictures, and then he told me the story of how of how he ran into this guy at I think one of the hotels uh, or one of the venues, and um, he found out you know, during the end of that conversation that that person was Phil Knight. So he, had, and then he had a picture with Phil Knight. So he showed me like a picture of him and Prefontaine's sister. And then another picture of him and Phil Knight. It was kind of cool. I'm like, like, wow, like, you know, this is uh very cool. Um, small town, I, small town. I guess you could run into <laughs> anybody there. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. It, it, when I did jog by the stadium, it, it got me pretty pumped up and I was like, okay, I know the race start is by the stadium and I need to be careful not to get overly hyped up at the beginning and, and, you know, go out too hard because of that. Right. So, um, it was, it was cool. So you said the registration was pretty small. How many people were in this race? 
it was like 2,000 people running the marathon. Obviously, the, when the race starts, it has the half marathon people as well, just like Dallas, just like a lot of marathons. Um, so it was very, very similar in numbers to the Dallas marathon that we ran in December. Yeah. So let's set the stage for the race. Let's talk about the course profile, the weather of the day, and um, your thoughts as you step to the starting line. So the morning of, we got there. Uh, actually, there wasn't a lot of traffic. It was very easy to just get dropped off. My wife dropped me off right by the uh, couple blocks from the start line. I walked over. There were a lot of people warming up. I started doing the same. I had on a throwaway sweat, uh, long sleeve. Um, that, uh, kept me a little bit warm. Um, it wasn't even that cold anyway. I probably could have done without, without that, but, um, I just kind of did a few, uh, easy strides back and forth, um, along that race start area where a lot of people were just warming up and doing the same thing and, uh, getting limbered up. And, uh, pretty soon everyone started lining up and we were, you know, shoulder to shoulder, but it wasn't too crowded. It was plenty of space. But it was definitely uh, a smaller race. I wasn't too far from the start line. I was about 15 feet from the 320 pace uh, pace runner, pace setter. He had the sign up, and there was a group of people that looked like they were just, you know, already tucking tucking in behind him. So the race was uh, there, and right there, right underneath the shadows of the stadium. It was really cool. All right, so now we set the stage. Let's get into the race story. How did it go? Uh, well, I, I, I think I may have mentioned the weather the race the morning of the race was just like Dallas. So it was like in the low fifties, a little bit drizzly, misty. Humidity levels were probably about the same. And I went out uh, controlled. I made sure that I had the pace setter um, in my sights ahead of me. And, and kept a, a equidistance um, for as much as I could. And w one thing I want to note is when I saw the, 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 the pacer, he looked pretty fit. I was like, okay, this guy looks like he could definitely easily run 320 if he's, you know, pacing for this group. So I was like, he, hopefully he stays on his splits. But if I do try to hang with him, I got to keep an eye on the splits to make sure he's not going too fast because you never know, right? Some people might just be a little bit faster than, than they want. So I, I took note of that. I was like, okay, this guy's, he's definitely going to run a 320. <laughs> he looks like he could anyway. But so I went out and it felt good. The first half marathon, the first half of that marathon, the first 13.1 went smoothly. It went easily. And I kept the pacer in my sights the whole time. Um, I even thought about tucking in right behind him, but I, I, I decided not to because there was plenty of people right behind him that looked like they were running at that running for that 320 or sub 320 time. So I was like, there's plenty of people here that I can tuck in behind and also just kind of pace off of as well. Um, and that went well for the first half. And I was taking my goo octanes a little bit more frequently than I did in Dallas. And I don't know if that was good or bad. But I also tried to stick to my plan of hydrating as much as I could the first half. And I did that. But, you know, you just don't get as much fluids from those cups. And I, 
and and I didn't train with the noon fluid that they had on course. I, t- I took water. I took uh, the, the noon, and I I switched back and forth. Um, and so the first half of that felt really good, felt really smooth. All the hills were really in that first half, and they were not too bad. Overall elevation of the course was around I think it was like four five hundred and seventy feet for Eugene, as compared to Dallas was around seven. 772 is what the what I have from my watch. So it was less elevation gain and most of it was in the first half. So once I got through that, I was like, okay, everything seems pretty good. But once I hit about mile 15, I started to feel like my legs were getting a little bit tighter. Um, the course, the course was good in the beginning and the end because you have the stadium and that's where the majority of the crowd is. But once you get beyond that and you're running along the river and you're going, um, you're going west and then you come back east and you come back towards the stadium, there's not a huge, uh, you know, lot of there's not a lot of fanfare and a lot of support throughout the course. It can get pretty quiet. So it is what it is. But um, come around mile fifteen. I started to feel a little fatigued and I was like, okay, let's make sure we're getting the the nutrition. We're getting the fluids as well before we hit, you know, the next, uh, 5k. And so I was doing all of that, but as the race went on and as I hit mile 20, 21, I started to feel the tightness come on. I don't, I don't know if that's considered a bonk because to me, I felt a bonk. In, in my first marathon in Chicago, I hit a wall there. Like I was going, uh, and, and all of a sudden it just came, kind of came crashing down to the point where I had to walk, um, and the legs just felt really, really bad. Whereas here, it just, the muscles just felt kind of tight and heavy as, as time went on. And so it just slowed me down 15, 20 seconds per mile. Then eventually, um, I think I had one split that was about nine minutes, but the slow the slow miles into the into the last six uh of that end end of that race miles 20 through 26 you know it was low 8 minutes to to 8:30 and then i had that 9 minute mile and then and then uh i never did get pa- get back under 8 minutes per mile which is obviously where i needed to be well under that and so you know you could take a look at the data and walk us through that in a minute but that's kind of ha- what happened is the legs just got tight and it slowed me down. Yeah. And watching, the, watching the race, it was, it was pretty intense watching you. Cause I knew what you were going for and looking at the splits from the beginning. First, like the, the race results, they break it down in five mile splits. So the first five mile split, you're at seven forty, So you're just a couple seconds below the target. And then the next five miles, you picked it back up to seven thirty eight. So now you're right on target. You're right there where you wanted to be. I was like, all right, I think he's going to do this. Then from mile 10 to mile 15, it just dropped to 739. So I thought you're still in a pretty good position at that point. And then um, from miles 15 to 20, it dropped down to 742. So now I was thinking, okay, this is starting to get into a danger zone right here. And um, getting that 320 that you're going for, you're going to have to pull out a really good 10K in the last the last uh last stretch of this this race in order to get it so given that it was already fading from the 15 to 20 mile mark i was uh, a little nervous there 
And then once I saw the final result, I saw you slowed down to a 7.54 pace at the end of the day. So, um, obviously the, like, like it, everything we saw in the, uh, your story checks out with the numbers, but I think we should take a look at what your Garmin data says okay. and see if we saw any, if we saw any red flags there. All right. Let's take a look at that. It's on the Dallas marathon. Let's go to Eugene. So walk, walk me through what you want to see and I will scroll to the, uh, the information. Okay, so let's go down to first thing I like to look at is like um, heart rate. So let's take a look at the heart rate. Okay. Yeah, so one of the things that I was look, noticing from the Dallas race is that when we looked at your heart rates, it was very gradual rise throughout the entire race. So in the first half of your Dallas marathon, your heart rate was below the average for the first half. Mm-hmm. So looking at this race, I noticed that. Um, so this is Dallas, as you can yeah, see. Yeah, Dallas. It's it's a very gradual, uh, almost linear progression, right towards the very end. Yep, right, very wow. gradual. You you started out under control. You started out well within your limits, and that allowed you to negative split the race and allowed you to finish strong. Mm-hmm. So here's Eugene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then, as you move along that line, you can see after you're already five miles in, and that coincides with the first hill, yep. your heart rate's already above the average. Yep. Um, and then it kind of goes down so you can recover a little bit for the next few miles. But then you can see there's like points where it spikes above that average. And some of those spikes look... There's a hill. So somewhat this... significant, significant. Yeah, and they're yeah. usually they're... coincide with the hills. Yep, so there's two hills here, right? Right here, mm-hmm. if we go to distance, this is right around mile 4. Uh, 4.5. And then mm-hmm. this is right around mile nine, right? Mm-hmm. So, but then in the beginning, there's a couple little rollers and there's a spike at mile 1.3. So there was kind of a bit of a, but the pro, you know, the thing is sometimes the heart rate strap tends to, to do a little spike in the beginning for some reason. I've noticed that mm-hmm. just in, in his historical uh, activity. Um, so I don't know whether that was the case or whether that was this particular hill and and maybe just the adrenaline. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, it's hard to say, but I would say, like, I would count one, two, three, four, five, maybe five spikes mm-hmm. in the first half of the race where you were above your above your um, average heart rate. Okay. So and every time every time you accelerate, it kind of takes it kind of takes away some of that energy that you have for later on. And it's, it's like taking money from the bank, taking does, away your savings. It does correlate with the pace, uh, pace spikes too, right? If you mm-hmm. look at that, um, I hate how they overlay this. So you can't see when you're hovering over exactly what you have. Um, so here's that pace spike, you know, right there. And then right in the beginning too, right? Kind of around it's kind of weird. There's like, there's like a weird spike here. And then there was a weird spike there. 1.6 and around, you know, half a mile. So you're right. There are spikes, right? There's mm-hmm. the point is there's spikes. There are hills in the beginning. They're not massive hills, but they're, but they're notable. And so yep. if you look at Dallas though, there were no spikes, real spikes in heart rate, but there was a hill. It was initially downhill, but then there was a hill at around mile, uh, mile two and a half, two point five, mm-hmm. and then the rest. Then from there to like 
mile eight, it was a gradual uphill. Yep. But there was no spike in pace or or heart rate there, right? Yeah, and on, in this race, you kept your heart rate under control, so you probably did for the hill. You probably kept your pace a little bit slower than what the average was of the target. So, what does that do? By going up the hill slower, it keeps you under control. It keeps you keeps yeah. you even, let's and take, you can sustain that. So let's look at the splits in the beginning uh, for Dallas. I mean, I was kind of under my eight minute pace for that race, right? But mm-hmm. but you know, I did back off here at mile six five and six where the hill was. So, mm-hmm. so mile five and six in Dallas, that's where the elevation ascent, this is where the elevation, I mean, there was elevation for that whole first seven miles really, but I kept it in check. I did slow down here. Um, you know, so there's that, right? So let's go look, look at, um, Eugene, look at the lap elevation splits there. Look, I held it pretty good. The 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 one where I was a little faster, there was some elevation gain. Um but I believe there was some also some uh elevation loss as well. Let me go back. Ascent, descent was zero. So Yeah, and all those splits are below your target time, right? So you're probably burning some matches going up those hills trying to maintain the same pace. As well, you know, you're going up a grade, and that's that's what results in the heart rate spike. Yeah, but I mean, it's not that significant though. It's seven thirty three, seven thirty six. My target is like a seven thirty. You know, for me to go sub three twenty, that's a seven thirty eight. So I'm not that far below. Mm-hmm. But but you but do... still, my my point is, you're burning matches, okay. and your the the cost of it is that your heart rate goes up. Yeah, and then when your heart rate goes up, then you got to recover. You got to you got to, and then it's there's only a certain number of matches you're going to be able to burn throughout the race. Yes, that's true for sure. So, so we're seeing some spikes in the heart rate. Not good. Um, compared to Dallas, we do have elevation ascent as well. Um, but we're not seeing the spikes in heart rate. Right. So, mm-hmm. so that that's, that's obviously clear. And, and I, I think those are good notable points. Yep. Um, and then, you could see, look, keep looking at the heart rate. You could see it's, um, or go back to Eugene. Okay. Here's Eugene. Yep. So you could see right around the two, two hour mark. I would estimate that the two hour mark approximately. Let's go to time. So right around two hours. Yep. Right here. You could see your heart rate's really starting to come up now. Now it's well above the average and it's going to stay there for the rest of the race. Yeah. You could see. And the there's over- probably no change in your pace at that point. It's just cardiac drift. So. Yeah, let's highlight that right there. Um, here, so this is now this zooms in. All of that's above the average, right? Most mm-hmm. of it. So okay. Yeah. So when you see that cardiac drift, you don't see any faster pace, but you got a high heart rate. The first thing I think about is what was your hydration status at that point? Like, were you staying on top of your uh, of your drinking? Were you getting enough fluids at the aid stations? I I think I was getting as much as I could. Right, short of slowing soup slowing down grabbing two cups and like making sure i got all the fluid from the cup i was running i did slow down i grabbed i did grab a cup at each of the eight stations folded it up and took as much as i could out of it right mm-hmm. but it was one cup per aid station you know so the other thing i wanted to mention was given that you're bringing up hydration is i noticed 
and this was something that I considered doing, but I didn't do because I didn't do it in Dallas. But I noticed that there were people at the start line with handheld bottles, and I saw them in the race too with handheld bottles. And I was like, dang it. I knew I should have had some water uh, more than, than just off the aid stations. Um, and the fact that, you know, these likely seasoned runners are more tuned to getting their hydration um, with these handheld bottles just kind of, you know, cemented that, that idea that it's probably a good idea and I should probably do it next time. Even if I have to throw it away, you know, what's the cost of uh, a $20 bottle that I throw away? You know, I probably could get it cheaper um, compared to a, a, a BQ qualifying time, right? It's Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because you mentioned you hadn't trained with the noon. And uh, you also said that you, you didn't like the noon, if I recall correctly. You I, said I don't, you didn't like the taste of it. I mean, it was it fine. Really, it, yeah. was, it wasn't bad, but I trained with Liquid IV. I, I think Liquid IV gets, gets me what I need, right? And mm. I should have had some with me. That's that's what I think. So, um, okay. So I'm gonna reset this. Uh, is there anything else you want to look at in the data here? Uh, so we can just go over briefly. But like at the point where you start to slow down, like in those last in that last 10k, um, just taking a look at some of the things that you notice what happening. Like you can scroll down to stride length or run cadence or mm-hmm. ground contact time, and then we see how all those factors are diminishing. Yeah. And we see, first of all, you're spending a lot more time on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that, your stride length is shortening and your cadence is slowing down. So all those factors are going to lead to a slower pace. Yeah. Let's see. Do they have, they don't show, they just, they have, um, stride length obviously starts to kind of go down. Run cadence obviously starts to go down and the vertical ratio starts to go up that. That, yep, so that's indicating that you're spending more time on the ground. Yep, yep. Uh, and um, in order to maintain pace, like for me, as the race goes on, as I start to get tired, my stride length will shorten, but then I notice that I kind of compensate compensate for it by still keeping the cadence up. Yeah. If, if, if I'm not supremely fatigued. Um, so hopefully if, one, if stride length is going down, hopefully that cadence is still going up or staying consistent at the very least. Well, well, that's what happened in Dallas, right? So look mm-hmm. at my cadence in Dallas in the last four four miles. It went up. Yep, started I was, moving those feet. It's pushing it. Now, where's the stride length? Stride length stayed. Eh, it wasn't it wasn't significant. There wasn't a significant change there, but cadence mm-hmm. went up. And that's yep. how that's how I got the extra 10 you know, 15 seconds faster per mile. There. Whereas here, Eugene, you can see clearly that my uh, run cadence started to diminish. You know, I was I, I started dropping below 180 steps per minute, which is what I was constantly at up until around uh, two and a half hour mark, or uh, that would be right around uh, 20 miles. Yeah, and then another interesting stat that I saw in there. Is the respiration rate? Do you have that one on on here? Yep, right here. Here's the respiration rate chart. Yeah, so you could see right around mile sixteen or so, um, the respiration rate also went up significantly, yep. along with the heart rate at that at similar point. 
So, um, yeah, higher breathing. And I'm not really, I'm not really familiar with this, the statistic, but it's interesting to see. I, I haven't seen this one a lot. Let's do this. But I'm it does take, seem correlated to the heart rate. I'm just going to isolate respiration rate with heart rate. So you can see it right back to back here. Look, here we go. Mm -hmm. Here we go. But again, it just shows your body's working harder at that point. You're like, you're not going any faster, but your body's definitely working harder at that point. Yeah. So right around here, mile 15 and a half, my respiration rate starts to go up. And shortly, and, and at the same point in time, that's where my heart rate stays above average. Yeah. That's an interesting correlation. All right, so um, still at the end of the day, personal best, four minutes faster than six months ago, five months ago. So I think that's pretty good, pretty good progress from from such a short time frame. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that the taper was bad, right? And so mm -hmm. we we had this conversation um, outside of of our episode here, but I wanted to show. I I, I thought about okay. What other information can I look at? And, and Strava has this fitness freshness score. And I wanted to bring this to your attention. I said, well, maybe there was a difference in terms of my fitness and freshness or my form, the delta between fitness and freshness in terms of how Strava calculates this is the form. And so they have nice graphs in terms of all the data that, that you upload. And I said, is there a difference between what where I was leading into Dallas versus leading into Eugene? And so if I go here and I go to the day before Dallas, my fitness was a 47, fatigue was a 29. That's a delta of uh, – hold on, do the math. 18, 16 – it should be 18. The form is 18 leading into Dallas, right? That's what that has. That's what – that's how Strava calculates your form. Um, I'm going to turn that off, but uh, leading into Eugene – my form was 19. It's actually one point higher, and you could start to you could see that um, the taper of the week before dropped it down uh, to the point where that that's how the math works out. But you can also see that there's a big spike that's a lot closer to the race day than for Eugene than there was for Dallas, right? Mm -hmm. So that leads me to 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 definitely say the taper was too close, likely too close, um, and I didn't get enough um, time to recover between the, that big, that big long run. So despite the fitness fatigue differential being relatively the same, um, I said, what else can I see in the data that might stand out? And the other piece was looking at just the weekly mileage, um, leading into Dallas, you'll see there's a, there's fairly good, smooth kind of periodization where there's a, a build and then there's a recovery and then there's another, um, increase in volume. And then there's that taper going to Dallas, where it was basically a four week taper. I then recovered after Dallas and I slowly built back up in late January through February. And then I had a really good build actually, at which point I, I had a couple of, I, I had a recovery week and then I slowly built back up into my next, um, set of, of weeks where I was putting in the, wanted to put in the mileage. But as you can see, there's this big gap here where I got sick. Um, and we talked about that previously. And then I made some bad decisions. You'll see here that the week after I, I hit my biggest mileage week ever because I got a little bit, you know, 
freaked out that I wasn't getting the volume I needed. And I ran 54 miles that week. And that fatigued me to where the following the subsequent two weeks, I was actually below my target mileage for those weeks. And then I also delayed that 22 mile long run, which was a little bit too close to the race day. And as you can see, there's this choppiness uh, for the month leading into the race. Whereas leading into Dallas, it was a nice, smooth, gradual uh, buildup and then a nice uh, taper down. So this in itself kind of, you know, was a red flag to me. Like this, this is where there was a lot of inconsistency going in. And this is likely why I wasn't able to, to, you know, hit my target, uh, goal race time. Yeah. So despite one good training week, you weren't able to get the training that you wanted. And I think there's a pretty good lesson here that applies to a lot of athletes is what do you do after you get sick? And like you said, your first impulse is just to train your ass off, get in as many miles as you can once you feel good. But then, um, what's the price that you have to pay for that is you can see in the following weeks, you weren't able to train to the level you wanted. You're probably tired. Legs probably felt heavy and you just couldn't get the volume that you wanted to get in or the quality of training that you wanted after that one initial big spike of volume week. Yep. Yeah. So that to me, it's hard for me to, I didn't see that there was a big Delta in nutrition during the race. Really the biggest difference between leading into Dallas versus leading to Eugene was that, that month before and the taper process. So I'm going to be uh, a little bit more vigilant going into Chicago um, and make sure that I have some really good periodization throughout the training uh, in over the summer and make sure that uh, my taper is, is good, solid, and uh, I don't make any bad decisions in terms of, uh, you know, putting in too many miles. So. All right. So, just so we can get on the podcast, what's your goal for the Chicago Marathon? Well, the goal has always been to qualify for Boston. So for mm-hmm. my, you know, we're middle-aged men, Ted. We're we're we're, right. we're above forty-five. So for the forty-five to forty-nine age group, we got to go sub three twenty. You did it. You you went three seventeen. My goal is to go under three twenty. So Chicago is actually a little bit faster course than Eugene. If you if you go to the the this interesting site where it calculates the the marathon comparisons, so I, I got to shave off like eight minutes, and um, we'll see. I've got I still have five months to go. I'm going to take May as a recovery month, and then start to rebuild back up in June and and get in the the workouts. So, so what big tr- changes are you going to make to your training between now and October? Well, that's a great question. Obviously, the the one we just mentioned, I, I need to have an adequate taper. I need to make sure that taper doesn't deviate from the plan. Even if I get sick, you know, don't don't think I need to throw in miles because I I, I might maybe miss a workout or two. Trust my aerobic capacity over the past you know eighteen twenty months of running that I've been doing, and and that needs to be that needs to that needs to happen. That taper needs to be right. The other thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to throw in, I'm going to throw in some longer long runs than I did leading into Eugene. I felt, I felt like my body probably wasn't fully recovered from Dallas and, and that's why I didn't throw in as many long runs or, you know, 15 miles and above as I probably should have. So I'm going to probably get in 
a few three, four, 20 milers um, throughout that training uh, block and make sure I have uh, recovery weeks uh, in between those, those bigger, bigger volume weeks. And, and I thought about either, ha either doing three weeks of, of volume and, and, and building and then having a recovery week after three or doing two and then three. So it's like the three week cycle or the four week cycle. I think I might actually go with a three week cycle to give my body a little bit more recovery between those heavier weeks. So that's something I think will, will benefit me just because of how much running I've done over the past 18, 20 months. So you've been a big uh, fan of MOF training. How, how's that going to fit into your next training build? Well, you know, really it's, it's, it's zone two training, right? And, and I'm going to keep the zone two training in the, in the, in my weekly running. Um, I'm going to take an 80, 20 approach basically. So 80% of my running is going to be easy zone two and 20% or less is going to be, um, at the higher, uh, intensities. So I'm going to, I'm going to get in more track work, more intervals and repeats and, Make sure that I also throw in the, some strength work, uh, getting in some some work on with the weights, not overly heavy, but a lot of stuff around stabilize the stabilizer muscles, core work, and keeping a consistent um, workout of that throughout my training block. Which I I've essentially done very little uh, weight training and not enough work on my stability muscles and core muscles in the last 18, 20 months. It's just been literally 99% running. So I got to add these touches in there um, and make sure that I take care of my body throughout this process because making sure that I don't get injured, keeping those uh, little muscles strong and healthy and then getting the recovery I need is going to be important. Yeah, I agree. I think, especially as we get older, we tend to neglect that type of stuff and that's the stuff that's going to keep us from getting hurt. So it's good to focus on all those, all the little things, all the little muscles, keep, keep in balance in your muscles. Like some muscles tend to get overused. You want to make sure you maintain that muscle balance so you don't pull anything or uh, get an injury. Yeah. And, and just to, just to kind of wrap this up a little bit, just kind of going back through the analysis that we just did, it, it dawned on me that, I didn't respect some of the demands of this course as well as I should have. I didn't train for early hills uh, and and I thought it was going to be relatively flat. So the that's going to be something that I that I pay particular attention to going forward. Uh, and it's something that actually we're going to talk about in our next episode with your training leading up to Ironman uh, World Championships in Nice. We're going to get into how you are training specific to the demands of the course, because that's something that you do all the time. That's why you are who you are and you're such a great coach, right, Ted? Yep. That's right. You've got to take into <laughs> account the, uh, the weather that you're going to be racing in, the elevation profile of the course, getting used to climbing for the durations you'll need to be climbing and, um, and just taking into account all the specific course demands that might be unique to a given course. 
uh, like I used to race Xterra, and there's there's a whole bunch of things you got to be prepared for, and uh, we could go over the next episode. We'll go over my approach to Ironman Nice. Sounds good. Sounds good. Maybe we get some competitors out there that uh, might take some insight from this. Who knows? Wonder if they're listening. They should. Tune in next time, folks. All right, we're out. Thanks, Dad. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Until next time, keep elevating your passion, your mindset, and your movement. Go beyond talent. Go beyond talent.